0: Okay, so by the looks of it, we finished on
1: page 45 in the 12 and 12 after the first full paragraph. So for anyone who's new, we're in the 12 and 12 reading step four as part of an extrapolation on step six. We're talking about the subtlety of the defects of character that the step four describes so that we are able to see certain things within ourselves that we're able to bring to God and ask for, for help in relinquishment and trying something different.
0: But before we do that, let's start with our prayers and uh, I'm Bill and I'm an alcoholic. God, I ask you for, uh, God, I just want to thank you for today. I want to thank you
1: for the, the beautiful day it is out in Calgary today. Thank you for my job the ability that you've given me to be of service to you and your kids. Creator, I ask for prayers for all of uh, the people on Sutena and all of our First Nations people that are suffering from uh, various spiritual maladies, that you help our people. And Creator, I ask for help of all people, anyone who's suffering and struggling with the malady, that you guide them and shine a light within them so that they can find that way out if it be thy will. Creator, I ask for your guidance tonight, your Your clarity, your courage, your wisdom and direction as we go through this material. I ask that you bring the memories and the words that are best able to serve people and myself in the, my own healing journey. Creator, I thank you for the people who, are, who inspire me to change their lives and, and to do the hard things. Creator, I thank you for all the experiences of pain that you've given me that I could learn and grow from. And I, I don't ask for more, but I ask you for the courage if they do come that I'm able to, to navigate all my challenges and darkness with you. Thank you, Creator. Hi, hi. And oh, yeah, thanks for my partner in this study, Janine, for being here and making the efforts to, to you know, just get here with her busy life and thank you hi hi
2: god thank you for the day and um that i got a good night's sleep last night before the book study continue to heal my brain and my arm speak through me tonight or at least let my brain function um Thank you for Bill and Tamara and for everyone in this book study who shows up to come together on Mondays and talk about some solution. Thank you for the problems that you put in front of me and for my emotions that show me which way I need to go and which way I need to not go. Mostly thank you for the people that you put in front of me who talk things out with me and redirect me and are available to help me navigate stuff when I can't see it. Thank you for Maze, who told me today, stop feeding him candy because I'm gonna make him sick. And he just makes me laugh and I'm so grateful that that happened. Thank you for my vehicle that I can get to places.
0: Oh.
2: I'm going to also just say, please, whatever's going on with my dog. Can you can you give a hand there? Um, thank you for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, mostly. you can take my frustrations. It's a program that I can actually do something with my frustrations. And uh, I'm really excited for what's coming. Please continue to be with me as I walk this path and showing me where to go even when I feel lost. Amen.
0: Okay, kids. We're going to
1: start on page 45. After the first paragraph, the first two words are if however. But before we get started, I just want to touch on. uh, So when we do the step three prayer, right? So some of you have heard this and I'm just going to reiterate it. And I'm sure I will many times as we keep going through the study. Build with me, do with me as thou will. That's essentially what the, that's what step six is about. Step six is about allowing God to build with you and do with you as he will. The thing about it, like we read a couple of weeks ago when we started step six was, you know, we have to do the heavy lifting and bring what the defect is to the surface and then have the courage to relinquish it and trust that God's going to take us to something better. And relieving us of the bondage of self is also what step six is about. Take away my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. These difficulties are the defects of character that cause us our difficulties. And to relinquish these things, to be victorious means there's a fight there. And the fight is fucking hard. And we have to bring God in on the fight. And the fight happens Millimeter by millimeter, circumstance by circumstance, and and eventually we start turning the tide on these defects. And the thing about some of these defects, and Janine talked well about it, I think last week, is the payoff of building character. We often don't get the immediate payoff, and it seems like it's not even the right thing to do. But over time, that's where the payoff comes. It's a long game. And doing what's hard and why it seems like it's not the right thing to do sometimes is because no one else is doing it and we've never really done it that way. And it doesn't seem like you're getting any benefit from it, whatever it might be. But the benefit of humility comes through that humiliation sometimes and through the pain, but the desire to seek and do God's will and build that character comes down the road and the feeling That you get inside will be the benefit. And then once you start learning how to like let things go, the term letting go is like it's a farce. To just let shit go is doesn't just happen because you want to. In the intellectual mind, you might think you have and you might want to and know you should, but the process of letting go actually comes through the work of what step six is talking about and learning the lesson within your deep subconscious. And healing those little pieces and then when you've actually let it go in your innermost self, that's when what you always wanted kind of gets delivered to you. And I know that that kind of sounds obscure and like, fantasy ish, but I believe from my own life and from the lives of a lot of people I've sponsored that it's actually true. So. Before we get going, I wanted to say that. And where all that is actually worked is in step 10. It's worked in your step 10, which we'll get to and really amplify that when we get there. And uh, you want to say anything before we start?
2: Yeah, I, I actually want to just add that we talk a lot about step 10 and and the importance of step 10. And that really is something that I think that we say extra loud because it's not said enough. But I think that in saying it extra loud, then we forget that step eleven is like it's got to be just as important. And when we get up to step step eleven, um we'll see the breakdown. And I think one of the things that um, helps a person helps me uh, overcome the defects that I feel powerless against is is the instructions in step eleven, um specifically around the pause and to not be, you know, acting on that, whatever it takes, like, I, I kind of think of self as my thinking, and my my thinking is the thing that's the problem. And if I am just reacting to life, I don't know if my thinking is right or wrong. but if I if I'm upset, I stop and I pause, and that pause has been really helpful because in the pause when I can't see self and I can't, I don't know what direction to go, i I get quiet, which doesn't mean I'm doing the right thing, but I know for sure I'm not lashing out and I'm not harming people like I used to do. So for me being, you know, early recovery-ish, that pause has been really important. And that step 11, the instructions for the day, like setting your day up, you know, when we we think of the 24 hours ahead, you know, even that is a a big reset. So as much as we talk about step 10, like it's really super important and we say it loudly because it's not said enough, what that looks like and how it's actually done in day-to-day. But the step 11 part, slows things down, offers the pause, and it gives you the step-by-step instructions, which we'll get to when we get to step 11.
0: Okay. Well, let's start. If, however, our natural disposition
1: is inclined to self-righteousness or grandiosity, our reaction will be just the opposite. We will be offended at AA's suggested inventory. No doubt we shall point with pride to the good lives we thought we lived before the bottles cut us down. We shall claim that our serious character defects, if we have any at all, may have been caused chiefly by excessive drinking. This being so, we think logically follows that sobriety, first and last, and all the time, is the only thing we need to work for. So... Okay, I'll just keep going. We believe that our one-time good characters will be revived the moment we quit alcohol. If we were pretty nice people all along except for drinking, what need is there for a moral inventory now that we're sober? We also clutch at another wonderful excuse for avoiding inventory. Our present anxieties and troubles we... uh, Our present anxieties and troubles were caused by, by behavior of other people, people who really needed a moral inventory. We firmly believe that if they'd only treat us better, we'd be all right. Therefore, we think that our indignation is justified and reasonable, that our resentments are the right kind. We aren't the guilty ones, they are. At this stage of the inventory proceedings, our sponsors come to the rescue, they can, for they can do this. They are the carriers of AA's tested experience with step four. They comfort the melancholy, one by first showing them that his case is not strange or different, that his character defects are probably no more numerous or worse than anyone else's in AA. The sponsor promptly proves by talking freely and easily without exhibitionism about his own defects past and present. This calm yet realistic stock taking is immensely reassuring. The sponsor probably points out that the newcomer has some assets which can be noted along with his liabilities. This tends to clear away the morbidity and encourage balance. As soon as he begins to be more objective, the newcomer can fearlessly fearlessly rather than fearfully look at his own defects. The sponsors of those who feel they need no inventory are confronted with quite another problem. This is because people who are driven by pride of self unconsciously blind themselves to their liabilities. These newcomers scarcely need comforting. The problem is to help them discover a chink in the walls. Their ego is built through which the light of reason can shine. Okay, I'm going to stop there. And I think we actually did read this, but that's okay. Um, Some new things came to mind. So back on 45, two-thirds of the way down, you'll see this being so. We think it logically follows that sobriety first, last, and all the time is the only thing we need to work for so typically in the program in the rooms of alcoholics anonymous cocaine anonymous uh, whatever anonymous program that you're in the issue at hand in the title of the fellowship so let's use alcoholics that it's all about the alcohol it's kind of like a smoke and mirrors thing because it's really not about the alcohol But you go to lots of rooms and that's all they care about. That's all they talk about. And that's all they focus on. And a lot of those rooms are really, really sick. Those areas of the program aren't doing well with the emotional sobriety of the people in the program. The thing about that is it's littered with so much theory and opinion of what they think it is. And it's not out of the literature that it actually infects newcomers and newcomers get the skewed message of that. That's what they think it is too. And then because so many people are trying to manage their own life and just not stay sober and live with the best of intention, there's a lot of fighting everyone and everything still. So that's just to be noted. And I'm not here to knock down other people or other rooms or messages, but I'm here to tell you what I think. And what i've seen and that's something huge it's not about alcohol okay
2: i think that that's also because it's not just the rooms it's society as a whole where you know like I, i have a sponsee that her son is in and out of sobriety physical sobriety and working with her to not get her hopes up because physical sobriety is not is nothing really that that doesn't mean anything and in fact like that really it's the chances of that lasting is so low but I think that that comes from, you know, if you go to an addiction counselor, the goal is, do you want to quit or do you want to just moderate, you know, that that's how the conversation will start off. And it's not, I'm here for emotional sobriety. It's like, you're there to, to figure out the use, you know, and and sometimes that doesn't even look like stopping altogether with an addiction counselor. You know, it's like, it's a totally different approach and the message everywhere is You're doing well as long as you're not using the substance. But but we know that if you just stop drinking, if you're really the the real deal alcoholic as described in the book, your problems get worse. And your problems, like I said, are are your thinking. It has nothing to do with the alcohol. We need a solution to the thinking. And because I'm an alcoholic, I reached for alcohol. But when I stop drinking, my thinking goes, goes bonkers. Like I'm worse without without it for a minute. And I need a solution, which is what The steps have offered me
1: okay and she's bang on i agree with everything you just said next paragraph we clutch we also clutch at another wonderful excuse for avoiding inventory and this is like at any point in recovery our present anxieties and troubles we are caused by the behavior of other people people who really need a moral inventory We firmly believe that if they'd only treat us better, we'd be all right. And, you know, I see that over and over and over that we just blame other people, even in the program, right? That's part of the theory of of the program is people are going to try to practice these principles, just self-willed principles into their affairs, but then they get the skewed idea that it's okay to just blame other people. And that happens over and over. So they're not looking at themselves. I just was doing some work with a guy who's been around a long time. Um, We're talking in his 20 years. And he shows up with like two lines of like resentments and one line of fears. And I'm just thinking in my head, holy man, like you really are missing the mark here. And I didn't say anything. And I had to really start asking them questions. The thing about an alcoholic, no matter at what stage they are, if a sponsor who's good, will be able to ask the right questions. So you ask the right questions and they always give you the goods. And because they want to be honest, they're not going to lie. For the most part, they might try to blind themselves to the truth, but that's where the questions have really come in of learning how to articulate and read the signs of the person you're working with so that they're giving you all the goods. By the time I was done that conversation with this person, we had about 20 fears that were pulled out and a numerous number of resentments. And it's because we won't see it. And on the next page, it talks about, uh, so 46, about two-thirds down, the sponsors of those who feel they need no inventory are confronted with a quite another problem. This guy didn't really think he needed an inventory, but he asked me to do inventory because he was struggling with a significant relationship in his life. So he wanted to do some work, but I could see he was still blaming, blaming, blaming. We're taught in the step four in the 12 in the big book, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Resolutely means in a determined unwavering um something manner so it means we just look at us and if we're 20% to blame then that 20% becomes 100% of what we look at and that's what I was doing with this guy um this is because pride people who are driven by pride of self unconsciously blind themselves to their liabilities and you might have heard the saying you can't see self with self if you're stuck in self, you can't always see self especially as time goes on, which is why it's so important to have a sponsor. Have your god-centered 12 god-centered 12 step pillars that you're talking about your life with, not just certain things, but your life in general, your relationships in intimate, you know, at work, with your friendships and Kind of like bringing things up to the surface because things reveal themselves in spite of yourself when you're talking about things. So that's super important for the dishonesty. In the step 10, where this work actually is practically applied, it says, We continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When they crop up, we ask God to remove them at once and we discuss them with somebody immediately. The thing about resentment is we have a full way to do inventory. And we know how to do it and then we take it to our sponsor and we talk about it because that's part of a step four process no problem fears we also have a fear inventory we list it we do the columns and then we take it to our sponsor and we talk it out the thing that we don't have is we don't have a selfishness or a dishonesty process so it's so important to talk with others because the dishonesty is cunning. And it hides itself. So you kind of out yourself with the dishonesty by talking to somebody else. So that's the process of coming out with the dishonesty. There's no actual process here, right? And sometimes as we get time in the program, we blind ourselves and we don't see the truth. Um. Okay, I'll just finish with this. The problem is to help them discover the chink in the walls their ego is built through with so the light of reason can shine. And I talked about those concrete walls, right? There's we have all these old protection mechanisms, life navigating systems, and ways to hide from ourselves. And by talking with somebody else, which is why this whole page talks about a sponsor, because by talking this out with people, We can use that chipping hammer to start chipping through the ego that we can't even see. Once we get through that concrete, the light of reason can shine into that dark part of us. And then it illuminates a lot of the darkness that was behind the wall. And that's the light of God, the light of reason. And then we can, you know, like it says here, it talked about an objective view um, couple lines up, as soon as he begins to be more objective, the newcomer can fearlessly rather than fearfully look at his own defects. Objectively means an open mind from a different perspective. And once we can open our mind at our own judgments and beliefs and mechanisms to keep us safe, then we can fearlessly rather than fearfully look at these defects. But a lot of these subtler pride defects. They don't want to be outed or exposed because they're actually tied into my identity today. And if I admit that, then my pride gets hurt. So it's hard. Right. And a big, uh, a big thing is like superior spiritual superiority as we get some time in, it blocks us and hides us from that. So
0: yeah, that's it. Um,
2: I'll just add the at the top of 46 there, it was talking about, It's like the the justified, the justified stuff, the justified emotions. And when you have the justified, so an example of my life would be um, when it came to addressing the resentment um, with my exes, with my ex, like my little, little guy's dad. Um, It looked like me getting out of treatment and then him kind of demanding an amends. And then asking for one in an indirect way, and then there was just this pressure and expectation around the me men, and I had such a block. And and when he brought it up, it was not helpful either. <laughs> um, and I couldn't figure out what the block was because I couldn't even see my part yet. And uh, it took the second round of steps, but but even when I came out of like like a solid, and I say when I say second round, I mean like after the treatment steps. Um, but when I came out of that round, I still like, I could see like my part sort of like, but it didn't feel like that was my part, you know, like I didn't feel, I felt like I, I, that was something I did. But if I would have said this was my part to him, it it wouldn't hit, but I couldn't figure out what that was. So I had to like, listen to what he was saying to me when we were fighting and that's how I figured it out. And he, he said, you know, you were always saying that you loved me. And, and then and that was kind of the theme. And I was like, holy crap. You know, this is what I would go along with things and not speak up. And, you know, the level of dishonesty and people pleasing and, you know, rescuing and what I do. And so when I heard that, I was like, okay, that's it. So I had jotted it down because I'm like, I'm going to make this amends. And I was still blocked because I'm like, he was worse. He did this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And And so what if I went along with him? Because you would too, because look how scary he is and la-da-da-da-da. And I couldn't get, get past the the part of like, I was so focused on what he did because it was wrong and it was wrong on so many levels. And therefore, how can I go with my petty thing of pretending I loved him compared to what, you know, and it was such a mind game for me and the process of that, like, we can't rush through the steps like we can, but like, you can't rush through like the lessons that life teaches. Um, as things go on and as you grow and develop as a person I was listening to a podcast yesterday and the guy was talking about just like his experience over the last 20 years in in a program and he's like I I was a I came in in my 20s and then I had my daughters and now I have my grandkids and you know I do a round of steps you know every year and I do that because of the step eight Every time I do a step eight, I see things differently because now I'm looking at it as a father. Now I'm looking at it as a grandfather and I'm seeing these hurts in a different way the harms that I couldn't see before because I, I didn't have that experience yet as a human. I didn't have that angle, that insight, the ability to give empathy. And so it's like that. And it's like now today, um, my relationship with my son's dad is 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 good i wouldn't say that we've sat down and had the solid amends where i've said this directly and and it will come and i'm willing it's just it hasn't presented i'm willing because of the resentment's gone because i now see it a totally different way and i listened to what he said and that defect it's it's pretty perverse for me like it comes up in a lot of ways so now that i can see it i really think that my part was just as gruesome as his part. And I don't see it as this justified anger anymore. But that did not come from uh, talking to a family counselor and treatment. And that did not come from pretending everything was okay with him after that did not come from time that did not come from a second round of steps that come from learning and staying sober, and like learning some more and sponsoring and, you know, just learning and staying sober, and doing what I'm doing in in the program. And over time, just pieces connect. So little pieces over time connected to something tangible that now I truly am willing and the resentment has been removed and I do see my part just as as much as his and I only care about my part and that's true today and and that just came from time and from doing things and it was a byproduct of doing things not a result of trying to get that outcome.
0: Okay, and then I'm going to add one more thing
1: in the middle of 46-ish. The sponsor promptly proves by talking freely and easily without expi- expeditionism, his own defects past and present. This calm yet realistic stock taking is immensely reassuring. The sponsor probably points out that the newcomer has some assets no longer his liabilities. So basically what I'm saying is, as we share our own experience as a sponsor or as a 12-step member, period, as a pillar or even a baby pillar to somebody in your recovery, as you share your own experiences, you will heal and you will be able to connect to the other person. And you give them the validation to be able to do the same thing. So one thing that I've noticed in my recovery and kind of in my community is, because I share a certain way in a meeting, people think that I'm going to be just like that as a sponsor, right? I'm pretty like forward and I'm very uh, forceful with my words. And I don't have a lot of wiggle room because I'm a big book thumper. So I kind of do it a certain way. And people think that I'm going to be a really hard sponsor, which I can be, but in the same breath, once we get sitting down and we do this, I'm sharing why I Became like this. I'm sharing like the struggles and the pain and the things that I've done that are totally stupid. And people are like, Holy shit, you did that? I'm like, Yeah, man. That's why, boom. And then I use that experience as a lesson on like my step six, and then how hard it was to let whatever that was go. And how much humiliation I might have suffered in the eyes of other people and how it pushed me to to keep going, to keep trying. And, how I could only let my pillars know, you know, certain things because nobody else would believe me anyway, right? So a lot of these lessons come out through the times that I sit with people one on one, and then it kind of makes me human because people, for whatever reason, put me on a pedestal from time to time, and and then it brings me back down to earth. And the reality is, is my job as a sponsor is to get people connected with their God not with me and me as the God, right? But I've noticed that can happen through the times that I've sponsored, but I'm aware of that and I don't let that happen. Although I might at the beginning because we need to create some momentum, but the main goal is you need a connection with fucking God,
0: period. Okay, so let's keep going. You or me, go ahead. Where'd you go?
2: First off, They can be told that the majority of AA members have have suffered severely from self-justification during their drinking days. For most of us, self-justification was the maker of excuses. Excuses, of course, for more drinking and for all kinds of crazy damaging conduct. We had made an invention of alibi of fine art. We had to drink because times were hard or times were good. We had to drink because at home we were smothered with love or we got none at all. We had to drink because at work we were great successors or dismal failures. We had to drink because our nation had won a war or lost peace. So it went ad infinitum. We thought conditions drove us to drink, and when we tried to correct these conditions and found that we couldn't to our entire satisfaction, our drinking went out of hand and we became alcoholics. It never occurred to us that we needed to change ourselves to meet the conditions, whatever they were. But in AA, we slowly learned that something had to be done about our vengeful resentment, self-pity, and unwarranted pride. We had to see that every time we played the big shot, we turned people against us. We had to see that when we harbored grudges and planned revenge for such defeats, we were beating ourselves up with the club of anger we intended to use on others. We learned that if we were seriously disturbed, our first need was to quiet that disturbance, regardless of who or what we thought caused it. To see how erratic emotions victimized us and often took took us a long time, we could perceive them quickly in others, but slowly in ourselves. First of all, we had to admit that we had many of these defects, even though such a disclosure was painful and humiliating. Where other people were concerned, we had to drop the word blame from our speech and thought. This required great willingness to even begin. But once over the first two or three high hurdles, the course began to look easier, for we had started to get perspective on ourselves, which is another way of saying we were gaining in humility. Of course, the depressive and the power driver are personality types to which AA and the whole world abound. Often these personalities are just as sharply defined as the examples given, but just as some of us have, but just as some of us will fit more or less into both classifications. Human beings are never quite alike, so each of us, when making an inventory, will need to determine what his individual character defects are. Having found the shoes that fit, he ought to step into them and walk with new confidence that he is at least on the right track.
1: Okay, going back to 47 at the top of the page, it talks about, well, almost top of the page. We thought conditions drove us to drink. So often in our defects, we think it's the conditions that actually are aggravating our defects, right? In the chapter where it talks about acceptance is the answer, we find some person, place, or thing unacceptable to us. Well, we're trying to get to a place where we can accept God's world exactly how it is supposed to be. In that same chapter it talks about nothing, absolutely nothing is out of place in God's world. But to come to terms with that through the journey, especially in the first few years, it's really hard when certain things are happening that don't seem fair and blah blah, 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 right? But it takes time to get to that stage. And once you get to that stage, you realize that it's not the conditions that are actually doing it to you. It's the belief that you carry about how things should be in any given situation. So it's an old idea and we have to let go of these old ideas or the result of serenity is nil. So learning how to, let's say, let go so that you can get to a place of serenity is actually hard. And it takes the work involved to look at yourself. Um, Like it says, um, down here on the next paragraph, we learned that if we were seriously disturbed, our first need was to quiet the disturbance, regardless of who or what caused it. So we got to be aware of what we're thinking and what we're feeling. If you're aware, then you can be willing. So always in this program, and this is really what step 10 is about, we continue to watch for My thinking and my feeling. When it crops up and I notice it, we ask God to help us with it at once. We ask, we talk to somebody immediately. Why would I talk to somebody immediately when I'm anxious or depressed or self-righteous or whatever? Because I got to stop living my life the old way with the best of intention. And I have to start living a new way. I, I am now living on a different plane, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. And I got to take these difficulties of anxiety, fear, judgment, expectations, expose those things and fucking toss them aside, but it's not easy. Right. So says back again to 47 middle of middle of the page. We had to see that every time we played the big shot, we turned people against us. And looking at your own life, where you kind of play the big shot and how people actually repel from that because it's based in the ego. But also previously last week, we talked about pride in reverse. So when you play the not big shot, but now you're playing like the fucking victim or the martyr, you also do the exact same thing. You push people away. And typically when you play the big shot, a lot of people aren't really co-signing the big shot ism because people don't really co-sign the big shot ism because our society kind of teaches us that that's kind of gross. Right. But Our society has also taught us that when you play the martyr and the victim, we're supposed to stroke your back and fucking make you feel good and give you all the the compassion that you need. The thing with giving somebody that plays the victim that's very, you know, depressive and not doing well that way is we give them the validation that it's okay to stay that way. And then they never grow up disillusionment, and helplessness are their lot. So sometimes in this program, we have to care more about that person's life than their feelings. And to tell somebody that's really depressive, that's living in that, because not everyone's going to, right? Like a depressive person who's playing the victim and the martyr, they're going to interact with, let's say, 20 people. Nineteen of those people are going to stroke that ego, that pride in reverse, and it's not going to help that person, but they're going to get that sense of relief in those moments and it feels good. The problem is is it doesn't fucking help them. But that one person who says, "You know what? you got to get off your pity pot, you got to take responsibility for your own suffering, and you got to do something small to fucking start changing it. And take that first step. Maybe that's getting up and do your dishes. Maybe that's fucking getting up and making your bed and doing your dishes the next day. You kind of fucking stack it up millimeter by millimeter. And you encourage that person to fucking take the steps because the 19 other people aren't. Why? Because what we do in this program goes counter to the culture that we live in. And, but that shit will kill us. Right? So Just a little note there, and to see next paragraph, bottom of forty-seven. You want to share anything on what I just said?
2: I was just going to add that. Go ahead. um, I was going to talk vibrationally, energy-wise. Like when somebody's in that low, that low energy state, and you're you're trying to soothe that, you're dropping down there, and the encouragement is is actually vital. And uh, anybody who's been in the depression and the self-pity. I can attest to that because it, it feels good for a second and then it doesn't. But what Bill said, he talked about encouragement and, you know, like, I was just researching this morning for some work stuff, um, some some research around encouragement and and motivation and the link between those two things. And, you know, sometimes people really just need to be encouraged. Like, you've got this what do you need like sometimes it's what do you need what's something small like he was talking about what's something small that we can do anyways so um i just think it's really important to remember that that encouragement is uh, you can't go wrong with that like to really just say what do you got to do to solve your problems how can i help you let's tackle one thing whatever it is and and that that will bring somebody up like vibrationally and it will actually motivate them and and when somebody's down and depressed, like the motivation starts to slip too. And so the best thing you can do, you know, for somebody is to tell them the truth with encouragement and bring them up out of that depressive state. And it doesn't have to be mean and direct and you don't have to hurt feelings. And it's like telling the truth. People people seem to think that this is something that is not going to go over well, but people want the truth. People always want the truth. Like there's never been a time that people say, Janine, I wish you hadn't told me that. You know, like when I when I was doing work, like in my work life, you know, I'd go over an assessment and I would say to the person, you know, like, hey, you know, I know you're here for depression, but do you want me to give you my take on it? It might offend you for a minute, you know, like it might be hard to hear, but it'll save us three, four five sessions on the back end. Nobody says, no, I just want to you know, wallow in my problems. And if you know the solution, just, you know, sit there and tell me whatever, you know, that's a waste of time. And people know the truth. And so like, they know that what you're saying is, I I actually find it hard when people, when I ask somebody for some advice and they beat around the bush, It's like, okay, this isn't helpful. Like, just tell me what I need to hear. Tell me that, tell me like the things I need to hear. And like that sponsor stuff, that paragraph, a page back there where it's saying a sponsor can you know help you with you know the way that this book talks sometimes it's like oh we see our defects and we resolutely look at them and we're just do, 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 do. it doesn't go like that like it's not like we see them and then we're just resolutely and fearlessly like it it's it's a it's hard you know like I just had somebody you know over come over to my house to talk to me and I knew that I was disturbed on some level and I knew like what was going on with me. And he's like, you got to look at your part. And I'm like, I know, but I don't know what it is. And it took a while to hash it out. And like, it's, it's, it's not as uncomfortable as people think like when, and this book is a backup. So if you're trying to sponsor somebody who you really just got to give some, some hard truth to, you know, hard to swallow truth, use the book. And so like the strategy that never fails me, it has not once failed me is to say, okay, I'm going to give this to you like a friend. And let's do that. So we do that. And it sounds fluffy. And it sounds like I'm co signing. And it, it actually sounds ridiculous, like, and then we, we do that. And, and they know that it, it's not the solution. And then I say, Okay, now I'm just going to give it to you as like a 12 step, I'm going to grab the book, and then I'm going to give it to you that way. And I literally just read, you know, whatever we got to hear, you know, like, well, if we're looking at our part, you know, and I don't even say it to them, I just read it and look at them. <laughs> and so, you know, it, you don't have there's ways that you can be confrontational without like having conflict. And it's like there's ways to tell the truth that isn't this screaming in their face, like proverbial two by four. It's like there's ways that you can tell the truth and be kind and be loving and like and get places with it. And so to to be scared of like the directness, that's that's an illusion. And then like the, the couple strategies I gave, they've never led me wrong. So if you do it that way and you use the book, like I I promise that you will get a good result.
1: And I'm just going to back her on the book, right? When you go to the book, you always have the ability that it's not about you and your opinion. And because of that, that's probably been one of my biggest strengths as a sponsor and a pillar in the community is I'm always backed by the literature. And people don't really confront me too much on the shit that I say or how I say it. And and I think it's because of the books, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, 47, bottom of the page. To see how erratic emotions victimized us. Fuck, I have that underlined and highlighted. I have this whole paragraph highlighted. Often took a long time. We could perceive them quickly in others, but only slowly in ourselves. First of all, we had to admit that we had many of these defects, even though such disclosures were painful and humiliating. So, when I talked earlier and many times throughout the study about admission of my certain defects that I have, it's humiliating because I maybe I'm three years sober and I got a good path of spirituality and I've been sponsoring and I built this reputation with my fellows but maybe my own reputation of what I think I am within myself and then to admit something really kind of knocks down what I think that I built about who I am and that's what it's talking about It's talking about humiliating myself and the pain that I have to go through and acknowledge me acknowledging that that maybe is part of me and I need to work on that right? But the thing about the pain within the human being is the pain is only a lesson of the ego. Because through the admission, and the objective look and being able to listen to somebody say these things to me, I'm able to look at myself and grow. So for me today, I never not look at what somebody says to me. I always try to at least find something I can look at and work on and see if there's some truth in it. Although they might be just like laying it out in a really nasty way, I still look at it, right? First of all, we had to admit these defects, even though such disclosures were painful and humiliating. Where other people were concerned, we had to drop the word blame from our speech and thought. So we might be able to practice self-restraint and not say anything, but how do we take it out of our thought? This is the step that separates the boys and the men. The boys are going to seek a self-determined objective and the men are going to seek a perfect objective of God. So in the process of the 10, we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When they crop up, we ask God to, remove them at once, we talk to somebody immediately, we make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone, but then it says we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Resolutely means in a determined, unwavering, purposeful manner. We really amp up the, the other person and we pray for them and we wish for the best for them when we ask God for help to give them everything that they ever wanted. And that is how we change the thought. But you got to be willing to relinquish the judgment that you have still. So as we sit in meetings and we sit on the bus and we sit at work and we have thoughts, we have agitation, we have judgments, being hyper aware of these thoughts and then doing something in those subtle moments is where the shit really rubber meets the road. Does that happen right away? No, Um, it takes time typically your average person is just going to maybe practice Mm self-restraint and they're going to not say anything. And then they're thinking they're practicing the principle and all of their affairs of, um, acceptance, Mm -hmm. but really they're not accepting anything. They've just shut their mouth and not made it worse, which is good because Mm -hmm. you got to start somewhere. That's
2: a good starting place. I think that's, got to be the starting place and then you got to do the rest of it what it's saying here is like you got to call so you got to get the thinking to be out of your head and and like going back to thinking as like the disease of self you you need somebody to intervene on that because i can be sitting there thinking that i'm thinking okay you know i could i could try and think differently i can i can do something to take my mind off something i can do but I can't change my own thinking. Like that's what I'm powerless against is my, my, my own thinking and my thoughts and, and the, the things. If I, if I didn't believe what I believe, I'd change my thoughts, but I, I'm, con- I'm convinced that what I think is right. And, and I can't see self from self. And so that's why to have restraint, I'm far enough along to know that I'm not gonna be lashing out on people because that's, that's clearly it's a sign. And then I, the spiritual axiom says, that's me, like, look at me but I can't see it, you know, so I can't think my way into seeing self. And so I need to bring somebody else in. And, and sometimes it takes more conversations of like, I'll be frustrated, I'll talk to somebody about it, and then I'll need to absorb it. And and it's still not gone, because I wasn't, you know, fully like seeing what's going on. And it takes a bit of exploration. You know, recently, just the, the, the conclusions that I came to took I don't know, three conversations. And then I was like, oh my God, I I feel like this is something, you know, but it took conversations with somebody talking honestly about my thoughts. And, you know, when Bill was talking about him himself and the reputation that he has and, you know, just being somebody who knows the book and there could be a pressure from that and there can be assumptions from that and and how he said he holds himself to a certain level of, you know, like what he's, how he's operating and integrity. Um, I was thinking kind of the same thing around what I went through with my mental health um, as working in the mental health field and how I, you know, the the hiding it and trying to navigate and deflect and like minimize and trying all different kinds of things that weren't directly what I needed to do because I was a mental health person working in a small community And not only can I not access any services there because it's, you know, like the conflict of interest and you can't go where your clients, There, there was a whole thing. But not only those, those logistics of it, it was that there's a standard, like, why would somebody come to a mental health professional who has struggles themselves? And that idea was completely flawed. And, you know, the, what this program says over and over is like, paradoxically, spirituality is not the way of the weak. This is something that takes a lot of courage and strength. And I today have like red flags up around people who think that, or who come across or say, or try and just live like they don't have any problems because that's not how life is. That's impossible. And like the, like that podcast I was talking about, how that guy was having new experiences every, every, you know, few years, he was seeing like some, some crazy things coming up on his eight because of how he was changing as a person. He was changing as a person because life chapters were happening. Life is happening and things are happening. And to just, you never get to a place that you're just like so spiritually fit that life isn't kicking you in the face sometimes and like as human beings we have like god given emotions and we have problems that are out of our control that are hard to accept you know like there's a lot of things that life can bring us that that'll take us down for a minute and so to have a perfect program or a standard on yourself or other people that they're never going to go through things they're never going to fall short that they somehow have achieved this spiritual high ground that they can see self from self that's impossible like so people are going to to fall from pedestals if you put them on there and in fact people who can admit their problems who can stand up and say hey i'm 10 years sober hey i'm 20 years sober and this is what i'm going through and this is what i struggle with those are the people that are the spiritual warriors in my opinion and i would be very cautious i am very cautious if people have a long time but they don't say that they have any problems and they have nothing new to work through in a meeting or i i think it's valuable to be a person who's been around a long time and listening to them talk about a a step in a new way how it comes up for them today and not how it came up for them 20 years ago and now they're good so i just think like the the way that life moves us we get the solutions but we're always gonna we're always gonna be human beings and we're always gonna need each other and nobody's ever gonna be perfect
1: and i just want to pound home that fact of uh You're never going to be perfect, and it's always wise to kind of consult and, you know, whatever. But on page 88 and the 12 and 12, it talks about more experienced people, of course, in all times and places have practiced unsparing self-survey and criticism. For the wise have always known that no one can make much much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit until he is able to admit and accept what he finds, until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. That's more experienced people. And then also on page 60, two-thirds of the way down, it says it is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. Surely then a novice not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. While the comment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we are still so inexperienced in establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. Okay, so let's keep going. And then we'll take a break once we're done the next paragraph on the next page. I want a, a 47 bottom of the page. So where other people were concerned, we had to drop the word blame from our speech and thought. Underlined, this required great willingness even to begin. Some of the defects that we have, they're so hard to step into that, trying to change it. It's so hard to say to somebody, I struggle with this, I need help. And then once that happens, it's a good start, but now now implementing that, right? Some people are scared to share at meetings, and they have a deathly fear of sharing in the meeting, or going up to the podium, or maybe it's even asking somebody to sponsor you. Maybe it's like, you know, I have an anger issue, or I have a porn issue, I have a lust issue. Maybe I have... Maybe women, it's like, I have major relationship issues or I have abandonment issues or whatever because our society says, don't tell people these things. You're supposed to take care of it yourself. And the willingness, the great willingness that we need is we step into that and we take that leap of faith. That's why I love what Moria said when she prayed. We ask, we pull on God's power. We pull on God's strength in those moments. Because she can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And we go and we take that step with God's power. And we find somebody that'll hear us and listen and won't judge us. And if the person doesn't listen and they don't hear us and they do judge us, then we grab more willingness and we try it again somewhere else. The thing about this journey is we don't stop. The minute we stop because someone didn't hear us or they fucking, they judged us. Then we develop another trauma that's going to fucking build more of that concrete that we need to get the light of reason behind, but we now we solidify it more.
2: Here's an example of how the thinking, how, how corrupt our thinking is. So take what Bill was just saying about people having fear that of, of speaking. So to me, that's just something like that. I get on my sponsees about is like, we're supposed to, the whole thing is we're trying to get rid of fear. So, and we're supposed to give back. So the one thing that you can do is share. That's like addressing your fear and it's giving back, like at a very fundamental level. So it's like, if you're not sharing, this is what you're doing. Oh my God, they're going to ask me to share. You're thinking about that. You're They're going to ask me to share. They're going to ask me. So you're not listening to the meeting. You're thinking about yourself. They're going to ask me to share. They're going to ask me, they're going to ask, and then, oh my God, I have to share. I have to share. And then if you do share, you're, you're, observing yourself sharing that's how self-centered it is it's like you're observing yourself sharing like thinking you're going to sound like an idiot what am I going to say like there's so much self in it it's like you're just like zzzz. and then you, then it's like you stop sharing and I sounded like an idiot I wonder what everybody's thinking about me oh my god I shouldn't have shared see this is why I don't share this is why I, and it and then you just actually exacerbate the whole problem and so it's like to just let that go, give it to God and practice with that. And, and the truth, like this saved me, like from, from being like disclosing personal information, say I had a fear on that. And, and that's not how we get it done. here. We need our experiences to be revealed. And so Bill would always say like, the truth doesn't need to be justified. And I was like, no, it actually doesn't. And, and so I thought, I'm just going to share where I'm at, honestly, with no other motive, but to just share where I'm at. And that's how it started for me with that. And then it was like, yeah, like, I don't have to fear anything because if if I'm for God, then who's going to be against me, right? Like if, if God's with me, then who's going to be against me kind of thing. And so that's how that's how it started for me is like the little things that that I don't have to fear these things. And if I'm sharing things with a good motive, things that are going to come at me that are seemingly bad, like it's this whole idea of like, this fears and the stuff that goes on it's all like in god's world like you're you're protected and what's happening around you isn't a result of you know anything but what's supposed to be happening and lessons to be learned and the things that are going on so to take the risks and just like give the new experiences is how you change your thinking so you have to like change your experiences by taking action different actions will change your experiences which will change your thinking and you then that's how we pick up the spiritual tools when, we, when it says pick up the kit of spiritual tools we do that by by taking different actions which which cause new experiences which then cause a different way of thinking and that's that's the whole how it says this all over the place and then our thought life will be put on a different plane Because we are having new experiences and we're, we're going after things in a different way that isn't self-absorbed and self-focused.
0: Beautifully put. So this required great willingness even to begin
1: and to what Janine just said, but once over the first two or three high hurdles, once we've tried something different, the course ahead begin to look easier because we gain some momentum where we you had to, start to get perspective on ourselves until we step into those unknown areas. We can't get a different perspective on ourselves. And Janine talked about, Oh, I'm going to look like a fool. I'm going to look like a fool. You know what? Expect to look like a bit of a fool when you try something new, mm-hmm. because that's how you have to learn to do anything is you got to look foolish at whatever it is.
2: Yeah. Nobody starts out an expert.
1: Right. When I learned how to skate, I looked like Bambi on ice and I didn't know what I was doing, you know, Whatever I try today, like one thing I won't do really is uh, I won't do karaoke because I think I'm going to look like a fucking idiot. But I did do it finally. And then it wasn't that bad. And I'm probably willing to do it again. I'm still a little apprehensive, but you give me a Slayer, Rain and Blood, and I'm fucking going to try it out. You know, not many people might know that or like it, but that's how I got to get started, right?
2: I need to see that.
1: Where we had started to get perspective on ourselves, which in another way of saying we were gaining in humility.
2: One sec. And so the gain, the perspective on ourselves that comes like, say you have, say you share and and you do sound like an idiot and then nothing happens. It's like, nobody cares. And I'll tell you something. One time we were at this meeting. Do you remember that meeting we were at where the guy went on and on and on for like 20 minutes and people were walking out and I don't know what he was talking about. And I was texting him and I was just like, somebody give this guy a little hook off the stage here and he went on and on and on and so I went right into self like this is harmful this is bad for newcomers people are leaving this is two people came up to me after and was like and I related to that guy I'm like what what did you relate to in that and then like they both told me some like valid things like one of them was like well I know not to get into it like my last relationship was super toxic and it just reminded me of that I'm so grateful where I'm at and I see how much I've changed and grown I don't know what the other person said but two people got something out of like what I thought was killing newcomers (laughs) so it's like you never know who's going to take something and and how do you know like how are you just so all-knowing that, that you can decide who's going to hear what in what way, like, just, just pray and let God speak through you. If you sound like an idiot, you sound like an idiot, but that's your own judgment. That's, that's like, you don't know. Nobody's going to come up to you and be like, Hey, you sounded like an idiot. Cause like, if you're giving it your best shot, you're saying where you're at, like that, that's it. And start there and you get a new experience and you start to go, Oh, that wasn't so bad. Jeez. Nobody came up to me and said, I looked like an idiot hey, somebody actually said, good share. Hey, nice to see you share. Good to see you stepping out of your comfort zone. You get a new perspective of yourself and you're collecting the new perspectives by stepping into the unknown.
1: And you're building love for yourself instead of the fear. Anyway, of course, the depressive and the power driver are personality extremes, types in which a the whole world abound. Often these personalities are just as sharply defined as the examples given. But just as often, some of us will fit more or less into both classifications. Human beings are never quite alike. So each of us, when making an inventory, will need to determine what his individual character defects are. So once you know what they are, and asking your friends and people around you to help you with that is a good idea. You know, if I went and asked my daughters, what are the things that you think I could do better? I'm probably going to get a fucking shock of what they, they think. And it's probably going to hurt my pride because it's probably going to be like, well, you could be better at this and this and this and all those things I thought I was pretty good at. And it probably has to do with my fatherhood, right? Which I think I'm a pretty good father. But, you know, we need to hear these things. And having found the shoes that fit, once I know what it is, the shoes that fit, you ought to step into them and walk with some new confidence that at least is on the right track. And that is that momentum building that we need and we need to c- keep going that that path, right? Okay, so anyway, let's keep going. Go ahead, Jenny. middle of 48.
2: Okay, now let's ponder the need for the list of more glaring personality defects all of us have in varying degrees. To those having religious training, such a list would set forth serious violations of moral principles. Some others will think of this list as defects of character. Still others will call it an index of maladjustments. Some will become quite annoyed if there's talk about immorality, let alone sin. But all of those who are, at least in, who are in the least reasonable will agree upon one point. There is plenty wrong with us alcoholics about which plenty will have to be done if we are to expect sobriety, progress, and any real ability to cope with life. To avoid falling into confusion over the names of these defects should be called, let's take a universally recognized list, list of major human failings. The seven deadly sins of pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. It is not by accident that the pride heads the procession. For pride leading into self-justification has always spurred by conscious or unconscious fears is the basic breeder of most human difficulties, the chief block to true progress. Pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves and others which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. When the satisfaction of our instincts for sex, security, and society become the sole object of our lives, then pride steps in to justify our excesses. All of these failings generate fear, a soul sickness in its own right. Then fear, in turn, generates more character defects. Unreasonable fear that our instincts will not be satisfied drives us to covet the possessions of others, to lust for sex and power, and to become angry when our instinctive demands are threatened, to be envious when the ambitions of others seem to be realized while ours are not. We eat, drink, and grab for more of everything we need, fearing we shall never have enough. And with genuine alarm at the prospect of work, we stay lazy. We loaf and procrastinate, our best work grudgingly and under half steam. These fears are termites that ceaselessly devour the foundations of whatever sort of life we try to build. So when AA suggests a fearless moral inventory, it must seem to every newcomer that more is being asked of him to do than he can. Both his pride and his fear beat him back every time he tries to look at himself. Pride says you need not pass this way and fear says you dare not look. But the testimony of AAs who have really tried a moral inventory is that pride and fear of this sort turn out to be the boogeyman, nothing else. Once we have complete willingness to take inventory and exert ourselves to do the job thoroughly, a wonderful light falls upon this foggy scene. As we persist, a brand new kind of confidence is born, and a sense of relief at finally facing ourselves is indescribable. These are the first fruits of step four.
1: Okay, back to 48. The first paragraph Janine read, basically what it's saying is inventory is really important no matter how you look at life and then it goes into the seven deadly sins so typically in the program we talk about the four main defects of character selfishness dishonesty resentment and fear or self-seeking um but to get like a deeper understanding of some of these defects we can go into these seven deadly sins and you can look at each sin and then Detail out some of your own defects off of that. Where am I envious, right? Am I envious at work in somebody else's uh, abilities or how they're seen? Am I envious at, at, you know, the gym of how other people work out and I I can't do it like that? Or like envy, like is a very subtle defect that really exposes a lot of our self-worth, our insecurities. And it's a great one to really look at. Um, sloth, where can we look at where we can do better in our lives in different areas? Where am I slothful, right? It can be, you know, in cooking, maybe I'm lazy at home and I have all this food in the fridge and I cook a shitty meal because I'm just lazy, right? Um, anger, gluttony, envy, like all of these can really amplify the defects that you're looking for. And it helps us to find the right shoes that fit. The thing about finding these things and looking at them is now you're forced to know them. <laughs> you can't hide anymore from some of these things that you see. Some of the some of the blindness to these defects is like bliss in a way because we don't have to worry about it. And we can justify and rationalize the most errant nonsense to suit our actions or our inaction in our life. But that doesn't really get us anywhere. So once we realize these things, then we can move towards the correction. The problem is that if we're not further enough along the plane or the train of recovery, we'll make ourselves feel worse by looking at these things. So there's a balance here, right? You got to at least try to look at them and then work towards their correction in a good way. But don't reveal these things and then beat yourself up because you can't you're not trying to fix them so there's a balance in everything right but uh for oh the other thing i wanted to say pride so we have a, a sentiment of what we believe pride is the thing about pride from my perspective is we have to redefine what pride is to me pride is the ego Ego is edging God out, E-G-O, edging God out. So it's absence of love. So then for me, pride is also part of the ego where I'm living in a fear. A lot of us think that pride is like good. I don't go with that perspective. I think pride is not good. Okay, so I re-identified pride as something to be attached to the ego, which is edging, edging God out. If God is love, then it's absence of love in some way, shape, or form. But if you still don't have like a hard and fast line on what pride is, you'll still confuse yourself as you move forward. And you'll see what I mean if, if you do that. <laughs> anyway, for pride leading the self-justification which is the best of intention, and always spurred by conscious or unconscious fears. So a lot of the way that we navigate life with the best of intention in life is actually spurred by conscious or unconscious fears. When I'm just living life on the way the world of the material has taught me, a lot of the underlying motivations are based in fear. But I've never really looked at it because it's just the way that it is. But that's where rigorous honesty comes in. Rigorous means accurate. Let's peel back the layers of whatever this is so that I can see, holy shit. It's actually a fear. Why am I afraid to not, why am I afraid to quit this job? If this job is eating away your soul. So you just accept it. Why? Because everybody everybody needs a job. But it's actually eating parts of your soul away. And it actually affects your emotional security with your kids and with your husband or wife, with your friends. And it takes away certain parts of your authentic truth. And now you've sold pieces of yourself out for a job. And and by identifying this, holy shit, I'm fearful to quit this job because I won't have a place to live and all of these other things that attach to it. Or maybe you're in a relationship that was based like 20 years ago in a value system that was the world of the material type of value system where security in a home and bills and, you know, the looks of you two when you got together was a big part of why you got together. And the ego really liked you guys attached to each other on each other's arm because you guys looked good as a couple because you were both handsome or pretty. Like these value systems of how you got together were actually skewed and based in ego. And that doesn't actually fare well down the road. So we got to look at, okay, well, maybe I'm not happy in this relationship because when I got into it, the value system that I lived by was based in a lot of egoic basis, fears, based in what society thought it should be. But now that I'm down the road here, I can't sell myself out. And sometimes a lot of times in this program, People leave relationships that they've been in because they can't lie to themselves anymore.
2: And they grow past it. And, and it's like, you're not, I go back to the treatment center tattoo, you know, like that made sense to me at the time, this guy. And then now I, I can't even wrap my head around how we even had conversation. So it's like the things that, you know, water finds its levels kind of thing. You you grow past it. If you're doing the work and another person's not either, you're going to just stay down there. Um, but if you're doing the work for real, you know, then you're, you're going to be growing past it and and it will fall away without you fighting it. That's the thing is like, I I see people knowing they get to a place and this is how it goes. Is like the awareness comes first and it's not like, oh, this person is like, you know, not doing their work or, you know, you can see it and then you identify it, but then there's a pain that comes from that. And there's a stage where it's like, you, you really have to, you know, see that you're outgrowing something and there's a pain in that. There's a painful, and I just tell, like, I have a couple of sponsees actually going through this exact thing. And then, and I said, don't rush the process, pray about it. Keep doing your work, stay sober. It will just be removed. Like, like you just have to do what you're doing and not fight it and don't force it because if you block the person and you're doing you're doing all this self stuff you're going to end up unblocking them you're going to i've learned that you know if you just do the stuff it people will fall away and it and it's like the problem never existed that's how it's been for like the one relationship that i got out of in in recovery like i could not understand how a person could could not be with someone and how i was ever going to leave this person and how this was going to go for me to Ever not have him in my life, and it had been a long relationship, and I just could not fathom life with without him. And I just kept doing the stuff, and you know, like I took the suggestions from my sponsor, and I talk about this sometimes. But long story short is that it, it went away as a result of doing what I needed to do. I just outgrew it, and it fell away. And it was a process of like we talk, and then we would. And then we talk and it would have confirmed that I didn't want. It. And, and it, it was like that. And it was kind of messy, but it, it, it fell away. And so it fell away as a result of doing the stuff. So it's like, if you're, if you're doing the work, you, you will, you will just continue to move in the direction that God takes you and people will just fall away and things will fall away. And going back to like the fear piece, like Bill was bringing up the job, like for the job to fall away, you know, if you know that that's, there's a stage where it's like, this isn't working for me. And same thing for me as like, oh, this wasn't working for me. And then I was like, trying to do it again. And then I was like, pissing around doing interviews for things that I didn't want to do. And like, I was doing the same things, feeling it out and then being like, okay, no, I'm past this. So again, it was like a, a kind of a one step ahead, one back, two ahead, one, back, and, and then, then it falls away. And then it, it's like, now I can't even imagine doing that type of work. And so none of this stuff I don't think is a clear cut. Like I have awareness and now it's changed. It's like you you figure it out and you figure it out through a little bit of pain and, and you use that pain to just continue to put you back on the right path. And the boogeyman part that's mentioned here. I'm a big, big believer in just ripping off the Band-Aid. If you identify a fear, do the thing that you got to do, do the thing you're scared of, because. If you have a monster in the closet, you can stand there looking at the closet and you can imagine a thousand different monsters and they can be all kinds of different sizes. It can be an Armageddon monster. But the minute you open the door, you only have one monster, not a thousand to contend with. You just have the one monster that's behind the door and that's it. Whatever it is, it's behind the door and it's never like you imagined. It's way smaller when you look at it and then you look at it directly and then you can take it on. But when you got a closed closet door, it can be anything. And that's scarier. So you want to open the closet door. And you want to look directly at it. And then you contend with it with God and your supports. So whatever your fear is, you want to rip that band-aid off. And don't just stare at the closet door imagining a thousand monsters.
1: And 4 Okay, so spurred on by conscious or unconscious fears. Is the basic breeder of most human difficulties? So any emotional deformity that you have is going to be based in fear. That's the period statement. And then we have a fear inventory. So fear inventory should be done fairly regularly because they're going to reveal things for you all the time. And it's going to allow you to clear the path and clear the channel and use God more. And it says the chief blocked true progress. This is a cool line. Pride lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others which cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. So let's say fear lures us into making demands upon ourselves or upon others that cannot be met without perverting or misusing our God-given instincts. So we have our God-given instincts that were described on the first page of this 12 and 12 step 4. Talked about sexualation, relation, material, emotional security, and companionship. These things are perfectly right, necessary, and God-given. Yet these instincts so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper function. So when they're exceeding their proper function, they drive us powerfully, blindly, subtly. They start driving us. They dominate us. They insist upon ruling our lives, and they often will tyrannize us. So going back to the sentence, it's a fear And it cannot be met without perverting. And perverting means to alter its state, to alter its original state. So we have the instinct, and it's there for a reason. But we can manipulate that instinct and rationalize and justify whatever we want from its original state to work for us. And we misuse our God-given instincts, okay? So how can I give you an example? Um, I can rationalize why I'm dating a certain person or why I'm cheating on my partner because that partner has not given me the love that I need, but I'm too afraid to break up with them. I'm too afraid to live on my own. So I can pervert that God-given instinct and take it from its original state and alter it to suit my own actions or my own inaction. And I misuse the God-given instincts. And that happens across the board. So anyway, um, when satisfaction of our instincts, so whatever I'm getting from my actions for sex, security and society becomes the sole object of our lives. Then pride steps in to justify our excesses. So you guys have heard me, some of you have heard me to say that the alcoholic is incapable of honesty on his own. They will rationalize and justify the most errant bullshit to suit their actions in their life and their inaction. The alcoholic life is the only normal one, even in sobriety. That's what that's saying. So when I live in pride or the ego, the ego always steps in and justifies whatever it is that I'm doing. And the ego is absence of God because it's edged God out. And so I'm working in a fear. And then I will continually need to give that fear relief because the ego only gets relief and it never gets satisfied because there's nothing satisfying to the ego. That's why bringing God into these egoic places is so important because the only thing more powerful that doesn't need any justification or needs for nothing is God. And when you think of God as love, you can identify that nothing can replace love. Love is indescribable. It needs for nothing. You don't have to justify it. And if you're justifying something, it's wrong. So the truth doesn't need justification. The truth of yourself and of love needs no justification. So if you're justifying something, my opinion, Mm -hmm. it's probably not right. And the journey of what we're talking about here is that journey of authentic truth. So you're getting to a place where you're authentically loving yourself and you can stand in the boundary of your own truth. You no longer have to set boundaries out of the insecurities and fears and the way society taught me to set boundaries. I can set it by going, that's not right for me. And I need to leave you. And this is why I'm really sorry. And I have to go. And I've learned along the way, my sponsor taught me this. I'm not responsible for my partner's happiness and I'm not responsible for anybody's happiness, but I am responsible for my own illness and my own path in life. And I can do all of these things in a kind and loving way. And although it might hurt and I might not have the, the security of all the bells and whistles of the house that I lived in and the cars that I lived in and all these things. And I might have to take that step and listen to my own truth. And through that, I might have a real piece of shit car or maybe I catch the bus or maybe I have to go get a job at Walmart or Kentucky fried chicken or something. But these are all lessons in humility that actually give me real self-esteem and self-confidence because now I step into these new areas of life. Like it said back here, great willingness. But once over the first two or three hurdles, the course ahead began to look easier, where we started to get a new perspective on ourselves. I start learning who I am, what I'm capable of, what will I accept and what I won't accept. And although there's pain involved, when you pull on that power and you listen to the truth, you don't have to justify anything to anybody. But it's not easy. That's why doing what's hard will make your life easy. But doing what's easy, staying in those situations and selling out pieces of your soul makes your life hard because you're fucking dishonoring your own consciousness of who you are.
2: I am going to tell a little story about a time that I almost bought a house with my mother and didn't check in with any pillars. Recently. So, yeah, this is actually like, like two or three months ago, two <laughs> months ago, maybe. Anyways, so. There's like five of us, and I was a little bit annoyed with her because she annoyed me. And uh, so I was telling them about it. And so I got the feedback. And one of the things that was really um, stuck with me is that I wanted to say, you know what? I'm setting the boundary. And then a friend of ours said, well, you can't set the boundary without explaining. Remember? And I was like, oh, because it's like, you can't discipline a child without explaining to them what they've done. And like, so I can't just set the boundary, like in my own mind, I have to actually have the conversation and that aligned with me and stuck out because I really, this authentic, authentic authenticity that, um, I think that makes us whole and, and finding out who you really are is the healing. And becoming the person that God always meant for us to be, like, that is the healing. And so, in part of that for me, and this is just my opinion, I, I also think that I have a responsibility to tell people the truth. And to to not just do things in my own head. And when I, when I am, you know, when I have something to say, to say it. And, and to do that with love and kindness and not just go out and I don't just throw opinions around at people like, but when people ask my opinion or when something affects me to, to tell somebody where, what is going on and to not just be making these, these rogue moves or whatever, in my own mind, thinking I'm doing God's work, you know, I'm setting a boundary, you know, like that. really what that actually is, what I was trying to do was avoid a difficult conversation. And I was, I was having fear, right? And so going back to alcoholics can rationalize and justify all kinds of shit. Like I totally, when I was saying that I'm, I was talking to four pillars and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to set the boundary. You you guys are right, whatever, whatever. And then it was like, no, 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 no. You can't just set the boundary. Like you can't, you have to actually have the, the hard conversation, which it's, it's so simple saying it, but what I couldn't see that. Like it was like this revolutionary mic drop when it was said to me. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And it completely aligns with how I hold myself in my recovery is I need to speak up when I have something to say to do it as best as I can and say it when it needs to be said. And like Bill was saying that it's not up to me how the person receives it if I'm doing it in love and kindness, and there's a reason for me to do it, like whether they've asked my opinion, or whether it's affecting me, those are the two reasons that I will tell somebody the truth. And so from there, if if the person has a bad reaction, that is not something that I need to fear. That's something that the person needs to process. And maybe like Bill said, like if he processes something, or if I process something, somebody says to me, like, I do that, that doesn't mean I'm going to take it and, you know, take it, God's gospel, but I'm going to listen and I'm going to hear it. And, you know, my, my sponsor always says, you know, like the truth, the truth will set you free, but first it's going to piss you off. And if something pisses me off, you're, it's something's in there, you know, like, and that was, I was taught to be my, an old instructor who was al and she talked about the light socket on my stomach. And if, if, if everything in life is just like, people's arms are little sockets and experiences of and if you get a jolt that's an indicator that you need to look at something. And so if if Bill said to me Janine you're a bad cook or whatever and that that wouldn't jolt me and I'd be like okay whatever Bill. But if he said something to me like oh, there's there's things and then I get a jolt then I know that it's something in me that that I'm disturbed and it's for a reason and I need to look at that. So I use those jolts as uncomfortable as they are as, as it, it's the spiritual axiom like when i'm disturbed there's something in me and so shut my mouth talk to somebody and figure out what it is and don't do any damage like try not to come out with collateral damage figure it out and and then make the steps and like going back to what that paragraph said about putting on let's say you know you're on the right track well i when i can identify what's going on like when i could identify it last night i i had an insight and i was like oh, okay And I had some relief with it because it's like, okay, I, now I know I've opened the closet door. I see what's looking at me. And now I, now I see how how I need to take this out. How, how do I take this monster out? Now it's one monster. I see what it is. Now I have a plan. And, and this book is full of instructions. So the, the hard work is really looking at it. The fact, fact finding and fact facing and doing that. And then you're armed with the facts about yourself. And it says, you know, this, in this step, like this is the key to the future. Why is it the key to the future? Because this is what is holding you back. This is where all of your problems are coming from and the failure that you're having is in yourself. So when you can get armed with the facts about yourself, like of course you're going to feel like you're on the right track because that's the key to the future. You get some relief and you got a plan. You have a book of plans. And hopefully by now you've got some pillars you can call and you've you have the solution. So you know, you can skip down the little path because you're happy that you're a defective little mother trucker, but you got a solution.
0: Awesome. Okay. All these failings generate a fear, a soul sickness in its own right. Then
1: fear in turn generates more character defects. Unreasonable fear that our instincts will not be satisfied drives us to covet the possession of others. The lust for sex and power to become angry when our instinctive demands are threatened. So... This little piece here, I have it underlined, those first five lines. And it talks about then fear and turn rate generates more character defects. Unreasonable fear that our instincts will not be satisfied. Drives us to, well, in this example, to covet the possession of others. But don't just leave it there because fear will drive you to grasp at more, you know, uh lash out more,
0: get angrier. Um Be more dishonest. Um, Go for more.
1: Gambling defects. uh, Hanging out with the wrong people. Whatever. Fear generates fucking everything. And because fear is the main hub of the eagle. It will want you to go seek the relief. And you're always going to try to get relief in something or other. So it's important to kind of find out what the instincts are that you're working with in within the fear but that only comes through doing the fear inventory and once you do the fear inventory you fucking find out okay here's the fear that I have of being alone and then the next fear is or question is why do I fear being alone well I fear being alone because I don't want to be lonely and then you just kind of keep going and you'll find you'll get down to the instinct. When we talked last week about the third column being the most important as your recovery and long-term recovery progresses, the fear, if you're doing it properly and you do it in depth, it'll take you down the third column more and more and more. And you will see that it usually boils down to type of some type of validation or self-worth that you didn't get or that you're seeking. And then you can kind of keep going down from there and bringing God in more and more and more to where the problems are arising. Um, quickly, just go down to the last sentence on that paragraph, these fears are the termites which ceaselessly devour the foundations of whatever sort of life we are trying to build. So if you're trying to build a life on the bedrock of God and the old fears keep crawling in, and they're subtle and they're sneaky, right? Because they're based with the best of your intention. We haven't actually exposed the motive of fear behind it yet. And that takes time. So what happens is these fears ceaselessly ceaselessly devour the foundation of the life you're trying to build. And think about that. These termites, they're little tiny little bugs you can barely see. And they just start chewing at your foundation of your life that you're trying to build. And then it kind of, you're suffering again. So we got to be aware. Like Janine said, awareness is key in this. And then willingness is key, right? So when AA suggests fearless moral inventory, blah, 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 keep going, both pride and fear beat him back. Every time he tries to look within himself. So fear and pride, which is based in pride, they conspire together and they say, you dare not look here. That is the wall that doesn't want me to look at it because I'm going to see something I don't really want to see. Okay. But the testimony of, okay, sorry, pride says you need not pass this way and fear says you dare not look. But the testimony of A's who have really tried this, the moral inventory is that pride and fear turn out to be the boogeyman. And like Janine says, as you step into it, you start to see that it's not as bad as you thought it was. And sometimes it might be, but that doesn't matter. You, you don't stop. Once we have a complete willingness to take inventory, blah, 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 exert themselves, drop thoroughly, really wonderful light falls upon the foggy scene. And then it says a brand new kind of confidence is born. It's actually self-confidence, like real self-confidence based in your own self and love for yourself the sense of relief that finally, a real sense of relief, that finally facing ourselves is indescribable. That's the God dope. That's the best kind of dope is that indescribable feeling of that. I feel like I'm on the right track and I'm learning about who and what
0: I am. These are the first fruits of step four. That's it. Okay. Here's one of my
1: favorite lines in all of our literature. It's a line or paragraph that I quote often. And I'm going to kind of dissect it here. Okay, by now the newcomer, I'm going to erase that part because usually the newcomer doesn't get this. This takes time. By now the newcomers probably arrived at the following conclusions. It's more like by now at two years in, Three years in, if you're working the actual program, then you finally come to the following conclusions, that his character defects representing the instincts gone astray have been the primary cause of his destructive drinking and his failure at life. And it's kind of backwards there. It's the character defects that actually cause the failure at life that causes the destructive drinking. But because we're trying to eliminate the drinking aspect of this as our first round, this is how he writes it. But unless he is now willing to work hard at the elimination of the worst of these defects, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him. That all the faulty foundation of his life will have to be torn out and built upon a new bedrock. Okay. So, we've just talked a lot about different types of subtle defects and we're going more deeper into the defects and the cunningness than normal, but we're only scratching the surface even still. So when you do your first step four, it says we considered it's common manifestations of self. And the first paragraph of step five, it says we ascertained in a rough way what the trouble was. So when we do our first set of steps, we're, seeing the common manifestations of self resentment, fear, sex conduct, and we ascertain in a rough way what the trouble is. Well, what about the deeper than rough way? Well, we're kind of getting into some of the deeper than rough way tonight, but it also gets deeper and it's more broad than what we're even covering here. Okay, so But unless you're now willing to work hard at the elimination of the worst of these defects, these difficulties, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him. The people that don't work on their defects at all, because the rooms have told them that it's just about the drink, they end up drinking again because it's not actually about the drink. And a lot of people can get three months, six months, eight months, maybe even a year, but almost never do they get two years because they're still driven powerfully, blindly, and subtly by the instincts that are driving their defects that they haven't been able or willing to relinquish. Possibly because pride hasn't wanted them to, or they haven't heard the message and they haven't got good counsel yet. Um, But anyway, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him. So then the people that have been able to put the substance aside, then the peace of mind becomes the problem. And we see across the board in the meetings, a lot of people that still struggle with the peace of mind part because they're still not able to see that you run your life on intention with the selfish motive still there, you still fight everyone and everything in your head. And the peace of mind never really comes because step 10 is not followed because most of the rooms don't even talk about step 10 in the proper way that it's actually designed in the big book. Step 10 is the critical part of the practical application of what all of this work is that we're talking about. And when you look at step 10 in the big book, It says, again, continue to watch for, moment by moment, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? I go to God and I ask him to remove it at once. Now I'm going to flip to the step six because that step 10 is actually, I'm working step six in it. Any person capable of enough willingness and honesty to try repeatedly step six on all his faults without reservation. Has indeed come a long way spiritually. That's like all the time, trying my best, the best I can. And so once I put that practical application on, I'm willing, I'm aware, and I'm willing, and I do it, then I start to feel different. And some of the time I'm going to suffer some pain. But what am I doing? I'm seeking humility as something to be desired. Part of that humility is the humiliation and the pain but I have a desire to grow and be the best version of myself that I can be. And after a while, the book says, I needn't be bludgeoned and beaten into humility anymore. It can come from my voluntary reaching for it as it can come from unremitting suffering. So what am I doing there? I'm destructing the foundation of self that my life's been built on. And I'm trying to build it on a new bedrock. Because the first step in the solution is we ask God to remove it at once. We talk to somebody immediately. That person also guides us back to God. We're finding the causes and condition of why I'm disturbed. We're casting it aside and we're bringing back love. And we're trying to navigate now with love again. So, both sobriety and peace of mind will still elude him. That all the faulty foundation of life will have to be torn out, built upon a new bedrock. So a selfish self-centeredness is at the root of my problem. That must be smashed. And I have to dismantle that foundation of life. It's not my fault. Society taught me. My parents taught me. Everybody taught me. And I took that and I ran with it. But it fucks up my life and it causes me lots of pain. And it eventually makes me drink. So that's not really my fault. It's just a statement of fact. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that is at the root of my trouble. And I must be rid of it. Or it will kill me. And there seems no way of entirely getting rid of the selfishness without God's help. I must have his aid. So what's the bedrock? Well, way back in we it talks about upon the simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure could be built. What was the cornerstone? Do I believe in God or am I even willing to believe in God? Upon that cornerstone. So the cornerstone is God. So I can have a cornerstone, which is God, but I can't fix it into place until I learn how to turn it over. So once I learn how to turn it over, that's when I fix the cornerstone in place. And that happens through the step 10 process. That is the essence of turning my will in my life over to the care of God. It doesn't happen by theory and understanding step three in the ego. It happens by practical application and a willingness and courage and honesty and open mindedness to do what step 10 is saying. I identify my will. I turn it over. I leave the results up to God. The result is I practice these principles in my affairs. I don't need to guess and self will anything anymore.
2: But I was just thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about how step ten, and people aren't talking about step ten, and in the twelve by twelve, I had another moment one night on a fellowship meeting. Um, I don't know, this light bulb went on about the the acid test, and and so it caught my attention, where it's like it's not even just removing the substance and having emotional sobriety. it's It's like the next level, and this is out of the twelve by twelve in step ten, is that can you, once you're sober? are you emotionally balanced and can you be of help to all people at all times? And so I think that that's become sort of a parameter of my own spiritual fitness in a day is like, do I feel like I can go through things and be going through uncertainty or going through various stressors or just, you know, life is happening and can I still be helpful? And I, and I've seen that this it's happened twice that, the first thing to go is me being helpful that it's not the emotional sobriety. It's, it's that it looks like this and this is, it's happened twice and so I'm developing a kind of a pattern and I'm like, mm, okay, that's something. So the first thing to go will be like, okay, I have to X, Y, Z. I have to. So then I start to, you know, I, I don't have time for this or I, I have to deal with or contend with over here or whatever, or I'm feeling too stressed and I'm going to isolate to feel better so i still haven't lost the emotional sobriety yet because i'm remedying remedy remedi- i'm i'm remedying it <laughs> with isolation so i still feel okay i haven't even noticed that i've started to lose my emotional sobriety cuz now i'm like isolating or i'm i'm pulling back on certain things or i'm you know like i'm starting to seek something else like a relationship or money or a job or or whatever things are starting to come before helping others and then and then from there I start to get and it doesn't take long and it doesn't it doesn't take long and I and I've I believe that that's like the relapse starting before the relapse that's what it looks like in my world is that you know you start you stop helping you see you start thinking about yourself again and then you spend some time in there getting yourself all worked up in whatever ways it's coming out And you stay there long enough and boom, you've got a blank mental spot and you're drunk.